Have you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the incredible beauty of music that we can hear the clash of cymbals and the simple melody of a piano, but the pureness of how it's brought together with our voices, asking in true humbleness, Father, that you would speak to us. So I thank you for the gift of worship and the gift of music and how it prepares our hearts both to praise and to know you better. Right now, we turn our attention to the things that are written in Scripture, and we do ask that you would speak and that you would cause us to orient our thinking to your thinking and not ask you to conform to our way, but rather, Father, that we would conform to you. That can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, God, I ask that for every person who's part of the virtual broadcast and everybody who's in the auditorium right now, that every soul would be dialed into you and what you want us to hear. And we pray for that in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you to go to uh, Joshua. If you're new to New Hope, we're working through a study called E2E. It's called Eternity to Eternity, and we're in Joshua chapter 11. We're going to hang out there this morning primarily, but I'm going to give you a few other verses. If maybe you don't have it electronically or you don't have a hard copy with you, it'll be on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way. What we're trying to do in this Eternity to Eternity series is see Jesus in the Old Testament, and He does come flying off the pages if you know how to look and what you're looking at and how to process it. And that's part of the reason we're spending all this time in this particular study. But when I come to Joshua chapter 11, there's such a degree of tension here, I find that I'm really tempted to take the position of a defense attorney for God, but He doesn't need me to be His defense attorney, does He? He, he doesn't need me to defend Him, but you come to passages like Joshua 11 and you find yourself, okay, like I've got to find ways to explain this. I find that I don't need to defend him, but it's helpful if I can bring a little bit of light and shed some understanding on what's going on here so that you get some perspective. Now, I promise you, because I know it's true in the 9 o'clock service, it's going to be true here today, I'm going to get emails this week. Individuals will draw a conclusion that I'm trying to lay some kind of a political statement underneath this. I'm not. It is about Israel. It is about some of the things that are going on in the Middle East right now, but it's not about that. It's not about politics because God rises above politics. So this is bigger than politics, it's bigger than issues, whatever issue you might have landed on. Here's one thing I hope we can all agree on. It's widely accepted that as our maker, God has the right to deliver judgment. If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. It doesn't mean that everybody in here agrees with that. It doesn't mean everybody watching through the broadcast right now agrees with that. But if you're in that place where you say, I agree with that, I believe that God can deliver judgment, let me add on a caveat to that. Does God have the right to deliver judgment in any fashion that He deems appropriate? And that sometimes causes people to have a bit of a pause, like, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, as your Maker, as the Creator, the quick answer to that question is yes. But a much more complete and much more complex response is this aspect. Yes, because He is righteous. 
and therefore he can't do anything unrighteously. Now, let me back up what I'm saying with some Scripture, and I want to put some verses on the screen for you to digest how we're approaching Joshua chapter 11. The first one comes from Psalm 145, 17. It simply makes a flat-out statement, the Lord is righteous in all His ways, and church people all over the world would say, yep, I agree with that. Everything He does is righteous. And then we find ourselves further agreeing when we come across Nehemiah 9.8, and Nehemiah says, you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. And notice there that the righteousness of God is connected with a character trait. You kept your word. You're faithful. Your promises are dependable. And you do that because you're righteous, so we get a positive aspect there. But then comes Daniel chapter 9, speaking about God's righteousness. The Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds, and you notice right away the character of God is attached to righteousness again, but in a negative way. Daniel's in Babylon when he says that. His entire nation has been taken away in captivity. Daniel himself as a teenager is hauled away in, in chains. They've become slaves of the Persian Empire. And he finds himself in Daniel chapter 9 on his knees pleading for his nation. And he confesses and he repents and says, God, we've done all this. We've rejected you. We've turned our backs on you. Even though you're faithful, even though your promises are true, we rejected you. And then he goes on to say, even when he kept the calamity in store and he brought it on us, the Lord our God is still a righteous God with respect to all his deeds, no qualifiers whatsoever. So because he is righteous, he is also a righteous judge, and because he's a righteous judge, he cannot act unrighteously. That means all his decrees, all his verdicts are absolutely faultless. Therefore, when God renders judgment, it's perfect because all his ways are perfect because he has perfect knowledge. We don't. He lacks nothing. So we have to keep that crucial thought in mind as we approach Joshua chapter 11, that God knows things that we don't know, but He's willing to tell us about, because what you're about to see is God is going to call forward all of the fighting forces of Israel to sweep across what will be their homeland, even though it's occupied by other people groups who have lived there for hundreds of years prior to Israel's arrival, and this new land that they're about to step into, it's going to become their homeland, it's the promised land, but it's been occupied by a group of people known as the Canaanites, and they're named after Noah's grandson, Canaan, and all of his offspring settled this territory, and they're known as the Canaanites. And they live there, and they live there first. Now, here's another detail you need to know as you step into this. In Joshua chapter 11, Canaan is not a unified nation, per se, the way that you think of a unified nation. We have states, Michigan, Minnesota, Texas, Florida. We're all part of a unified nation known as the United States. France, a unified nation. Great Britain, a unified nation. But that's not what's going on here. They aren't a unified nation per se, it's a series of individual regions with what they call, and I'll use the term loosely, kings, 
who reign over individual regions. So there's generally a capital city, and around that capital city are smaller suburbs. And what we would think of today as a governor or minor governor or a mayor, they would call kings in the Old Testament. And there's a group of kings that have come together against Israel, and they've decided to take some action against them. Now, last week, we saw a group of five kings that decided they were going to unite against Israel and make an attack on them. But that was in Joshua 9. If you read Joshua 10, you find that those five kings were all defeated. And I want to take you to Joshua 10 just for a glimpse for a moment. Look with me on the screen, verse 24. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And there's this intense imagery coming out. Something that's commanded by God is carried out in an earthly judgment, and we discern that it came directly from God, and Joshua carries out this execution, but there's a bigger element going on here that's linked all together with Scripture. Now today, you're going to see a group of 31 kings, and they're going to come against Israel, and it's the entire northern half of the land of Israel, and they're united to attack Israel. Verse 1, Joshua chapter 11. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, notice this, if you have your Bible open, you might even want to circle it, heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of all the things that God had been doing all over the Middle East, from the freeing of the slaves from Egypt to the Jordan River to Jericho. He heard of these things that he sent Joab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron and to the king of Ashpah and to the kings who were of the north north in the hill country, and to Arabah, south of Chinnereth, that's the Sea of Galilee, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, the Amorite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Mount Hermon in the land of Mizpah. If you add it all up, you go to Joshua 12, you find there's 31 kings. And at the very heart of the 31 kings is this guy, Jabin. And Jabin is a dynastic ruler, his daddy, his granddaddy, his great-granddaddy before him, going way, way back, have passed the dynasty on down to him. And he's king over the biggest city of the entire Canaanite realm, and it's well-fortified, and it sits on 200 acres, and it's got a massive population, and it has suburbs all the way around it, and they have a 140-foot high wall. It's 24 feet thick, and it sits up so high you can see it from a long distance away, the capital city of the capital cities, and Jabin is the king over it. And it serves as the center of commercial trade, and it's the major city along all these trade routes between Egypt and Babylon. And archaeological digs more recently since the 1970s have actually validated for us that Hazor is serving over what is somewhat of a crown jewel of this entire region. And we think we have old cities here in the United States because we date back to the 1600s in some places like down in Florida. Hazor is 900 years old, which means this dynastic ruler has a lot to lose because a lot of time has gone by and there's a lot of things that have been passed down to him. 
So we're reminded that all these people groups, they're assembling for a climactic battle. Yet in terms of the judgment of God that we just spoke about, the judgment has already, already been announced on these individuals. If you go all the way back to Genesis 15, I reminded you of this three weeks ago when we looked at Jericho, that God, when He was speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15, said, yep, Abraham, you're going to get some land. But the reality is your people are going to become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be in a land that is not theirs. But look with me on the screen at Genesis 15 and drop all the way down to verse 16. And God said to him, then in the fourth generation, they will return here, meaning to the promised land. But it's going to take 400 years for it to happen. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And don't confuse Amorite and Canaanite. They are one and the same. These are the same groups of people. It's just describing the geography of where they lived. So what you found is this battle is over before it ever starts, this one that Joshua is about to step into, because 400 years earlier, God identified a really big issue, and the issue is the iniquity. But He says, I'm going to be patient, and I'm going to wait 400 years by chance. There could be people who would repent. During that 400 years, they might turn to Me. So we remember from when we looked at the city of Jericho that God is far more patient than we ever dreamed of, right? God is really, really patient. He puts up with us, but He puts up with people for hundreds and hundreds of years, far more patient than we ever dreamed of. When you come to Joshua 11, what you find is Abraham's descendants, <clears throat> they're about to take the land because one of God's purposes is that He wants to punish the Canaanites for their egregious sins. So verse 4, they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the enemies unite, and the forces are formidable, but they need a rendezvous point because they're coming from many regions. And if you look at it and study it, you'll find actually they're coming from way down by the Egyptian border. They're coming from the Mediterranean Sea coastline. They're coming from all the way to the north up by Turkey, and they're coming way over from the east from the Jordan Valley area. And they all need a place to meet. So they're going to meet at this river area where these abundant springs are that this King Jabin has chosen, and they assemble with a massive army. And they bring the latest weapons. They've got chariots which you may not think is a big deal, but that's an enormous challenge if your entire army is on foot, which the Israelites are, but the chariots have a weakness. This enemy is armed with ultimate modern weaponry. They're drawn with chariots with these very fast horses, which these chariots quickly disassemble and can be reassembled on the field of battle, and they're only maneuverable on flat ground. They don't work so well when you get into the mountains. When you get into the hill country, they're virtually ineffective. So we've got the inclusion here of some Jebusites. And the Jebusites that are mentioned, those are the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which is way to the south. So that He's choosing people from the south and from the north and from the west and from the east tells you just how desperate they are to bring all these forces together because they actually are feeling very, very threatened, so they're bringing help from far and wide. Now that's a big army when he says, as vast as the sand on the seashore. Such a vast force would appear invincible. Now the statement, as big as the sand on the seashore, that's hyperbole, obviously. That would be billions and billions. 
But what he's saying is it's innumerable. There's so many warriors on the field, it scares the bejeebers out of Joshua. So God has to actually remind him of who he is. In verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Moran and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, so they defeated them and pursued them as far as the great Sidon and the Misprof Maim and the valley of Mizpah to the east, and they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. So by this point, Joshua's got a battle-hardened army. They've already taken Jericho. They've already dealt with the Jebusites. They've dealt with the Gibeonites, and they conquered Ai. And by this time, these guys are warriors that are not to be messed with. And they come with a preemptive strike, and they catch the enemy completely unprepared. And the coalition splits apart. And that massive army, according to what Scripture says, runs to the northwest and to the northeast. What's in the northwest and the northeast? Mountains. And their chariots don't work in mountains. And God commands Joshua to go back and neutralize the chariots and burn them. And there's only one possible reason to demolish such expensive warfare equipment. Because they have finally matured to the point where they realize they do not trust in chariots or in horses, but in the name of the Lord their God. So we're seeing a group of individuals who have matured. And they realize their confidence is in God. So there's no notice here of any amazing miracle as there was at Jericho. But we know as we read this, there's no way this could be done except with God. Let's keep going. I know this is moving fast, but hang with me. Verse 10. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king, that's King Jabin, with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned." So as with Jericho, Hazor, this capital city of all capital cities, the jewel of the region, that one is Harem also, the word from a few weeks ago. It's devoted to God. Nothing is spared in it. Everything is given over to destruction. This caused a lot of questions after the 9 o'clock, like every living thing in that city? Israel does not burn all the other royal cities, we're told. It doesn't burn the ones that are on their mounds. Now, archaeologists very quickly identify with that understanding. They're talking about tells. See, when an ancient city was captured in battle and it was crushed, it became rubble, and the next city was built on top of it. And over the generations, cities piled on top of cities. As they crumbled, they built new ones, and the mound got higher and higher. Well, those became the capital cities, the royal cities, if you will. They were the capital city of the entire district. Well, Joshua's smart enough not to destroy those because those are well-organized administrative centers of really large districts. 
Egyptians had a, a number of these cities where their governors lived. One of them was known as Gaza. The obliteration of the most significant Canaanite city of the second millennium is Hazor, and it has a major population. And I just want to remind you of what you read a few weeks ago, because it was devoted to God, in other words, for destruction. Look with me at the word on the screen, and it's in your notes this morning, harem, something specifically given over to God. And I mentioned in reference, it's like your offering. If you give money to the church, you put it in the offering box. Once you've dropped it in, you're giving it over to God. You don't expect that you're going to reach in and take it back out. It's something that you have harem, you've devoted it to God. So God said, that one's mine, you go ahead and destroy it. Verse 14, all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. But if you read it carefully, it looks like he primarily took out the men but left the women and the children alone, except there's a confusion of statements there. And what, our mind doesn't know what to do with this, and it causes tension. And maybe you're feeling that tension right now, like Israel wiped out everybody? What you're reading here is that God has given them complete victory over this coalition, and all the military assets are destroyed, but the burning of those cities, those royal cities, was not commanded by God. Consequently, they're ready for immediate reoccupation. And God had said to Joshua and Moses, you know what, you're going to live in cities that you did not build. You're going to drink from wine that you didn't grow. You're going to eat crops that you had no part in because I'm going to give that to you. And there's where it comes to an ending. It looks like, verse 16, thus Joshua took all the land. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle, and he has gained control of the entire region, yet he hasn't yet taken every city because this narrative it actually gives the impression that this was a lightning-quick campaign, like they did this in a weekend. And actually, this took seven years because of all the skirmishes with all the smaller cities. And even then, they didn't get it all done. The last of the Canaanites was not actually put under Israel's authority until a guy by the name of King David comes on the throne, and he has to deal with them who are living in the Philistine territory. And one of them is a giant by the name of Goliath. And he's living in a region known as Gath. But then we come to a screeching halt because we hit verse 20. And we actually hit the heart of the issue head on. And the real hammer drops at verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy but that He might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And right away, if you're thinking individual, you know there's something bigger going on. This is much bigger than Joshua because we've just heard that God commanded Moses. Moses passed it on to Joshua. Joshua is just carrying out orders. And this is a really big deal because it's rooted in God giving this directive. 
because this has been an issue for generations upon generations upon generations. Individuals rejecting God, so an entire population has refused what God has revealed. And stunningly, except for Rahab, not one of the Canaanites repents because of hard hearts. And we're reading here that God hardened their hearts for slaughter. How do I rectify that in my mind? Well, exactly as with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we're told in the first five plagues it goes this way. Pharaoh hardened his heart, 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 and then comes plague number six. God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Because he'd come to the point of a threshold. Now, I pointed you to verse one earlier, and I said you should circle those three words because it says, Jabin heard of it meaning he heard of everything that God had done, just like Pharaoh had heard of everything that God had done. And yet, he had a hard, hard heart towards the things of God. So as with Pharaoh, the hearts of these Canaanites are hard, and we're all born hard, unfortunately. We'd like to think we all have soft hearts and we really understand the things of God, and it all makes sense to us from babyhood. But Scripture says, no, that's not actually the case. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If you understand the things of God right now, and the Bible makes sense to you, and you understand who Jesus is and what He did, we're being told from Scripture that that's a gift of God. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. That's called God's grace because it's not natural because we're fallen and we're all resistant to the things of God until we see and understand because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We can't make sense of these things and that's where you find Jabin and these other kings. They've got hard hearts against God. Many individuals, when they're confronted with God's amazing evidence that He is the Creator, that He is the judge of all the earth, Many individuals are just like Pharaoh, and they have a hard heart. So in this case, they have hundreds of years of God patiently waiting for any indication of repentance. And this God who is sovereign finally comes to the point where He hardens them because they willfully rejected the one true God. And the consequence of that is they're unfit to remain in the land. God actually says the land vomits them. Watch with me. Look with me at Leviticus 18. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by these all the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment on it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So the Bible is really, really clear. All of humanity is born dead on arrival. We're biologically born with life, but spiritually we're dead to the things of God until the Holy Spirit awakens within us who God is. Therefore, from birth, all humanity is dead in sin and we all deserve God's judgment. But it's God's mercy that gives new life. 
And the consequence of their rejection of God, this great wickedness of rejecting God, is annihilation. Verse 21. Then Joshua came at the end of that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. Pay close attention to verse 22. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Some remained. Now, the Anakim, so that you understand, they lived in the southern region, the southernmost extreme of Israel, all the way down near the Egyptian border. They descend from an individual known as Anak, which is a term for long neck. Joshua chapter 11 singles them out for a very specific reason, because this is a powerful warrior class of individuals. Pharaoh Anastasis I a letter that he had prepared to document individuals who were living in Ashdod, Gaza, and Gad at this particular period of time. Um, he recorded that these individuals were between seven feet and nine feet tall. Two skeletons were unearthed in this same region in the 1970s, females who were in excess of seven feet in height dating to the Bronze Age, right from this period of time. It's a match for what you read about Goliath from Gath in the Bible, who came from this exact same region. And these individuals were fierce warriors. And these warriors of great renown became the primary excuse of the first rebellion 40 years earlier when individuals said, there's no way we can go into that land. We're as grasshoppers in their eyes. They're giants in the land. And they brought that back, and the first generation rejected what God wanted them to do, and He sent them into 40 years of wandering. But here we're being told that the only survivors at the end of Joshua's campaign are these ancestors of Anakim from Gaza, from Gath, and from Ashdod, which are these Mediterranean coastal cities that are right in Philistine territory, which notably Goliath came from. So it's very, very fitting that this whole account comes to an end with a victory over the most fearsome adversaries, even though he left some alive in those three cities. So comprehensive is the victory that God utterly destroys even the worst of their enemies and this utter disintegration of the entire Canaanite military. It's putting God's power on display. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world, Mark? What are you seeing here? Because the exact same God who was sufficient then is equally sufficient now, right? No matter the giant in your life, the giants didn't get smaller in 40 years. They're the same people. It's just a 40-year-later generation facing the same giants in the land, and they've come up against these individuals, and it's magnifying the power of God because He dealt with even the worst of their enemies. And then it comes to a crashing halt in verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, thus the land had rest from war. If you've been feeling tension up till now, hold on, you're going to really feel it now. Nervous laughs, right? Okay. Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. It says specifically that the people who belong to God 
in faith through Jesus Christ our Lord, those individuals will enter into an eternal rest one day. We're being told there at the very end of the story that the land had rest from all its war. Why? Because the most evil had been defeated. We're told in the New Testament, those who belong to God are going to enter into an eternal rest one day when evil is fully conquered. Hold that thought. I'll come back to that. Today, there are many who find fault with God ordering genocide. And I know of individuals in my own life who have read about the God of the Old Testament and said, if that's what he's like, I don't want anything to do with him. Because that seems totally inconsistent with the Jesus that I read about in the New Testament. How can they be one and the same? So there are many who find fault with God ordering genocide and the nation that carried it out. Even if those same individuals will say, God has the right to deliver judgment. He can deliver judgment in any way that he wants to. First, know this. Israel, in regards to them, the Bible's making it very clear that God is using them to punish the wicked, and it's being done at His command. To not do what God told them to do would mean they would be in disobedience, and then they would have to deal with the consequences. But that's lesser. Here's the bigger issue. Did you notice that as we're working through this, that it's heavily focused on the kings who were put to the sword? Much of the account of the story was on those individuals. Now, to conquer a king in their world, it meant conquering all aspects of the social life of that world. It wasn't just about that one individual. It meant conquering a lifestyle in the ancient world. So we see this. I want to remind you of what you started with this morning. We're coming full circle. Joshua 10, 22. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had come with, gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So to put your foot on the neck of your enemy means your enemy is under your sword. They are at your disposal. You can do with them what you will. It means you have crushed your enemy. So it's much more than just cutting the head off the snake. As evil as a particular king might be, to speak of defeating a king is to assert that this victory is over an entire society, over an entire culture in a very pointed way. And this judgment's coming from God, and it's coming against a way of life which is rooted in a rejection of God. The judgment that you see in Joshua chapter 11 is a declaration for you today. It's a declaration that God's righteousness is so perfect and so powerful that God will ultimately judge sin, all sin. So His patience, because He's so patient, His patience ensures judgment comes slowly. But His righteousness guarantees judgment's going to come, and it comes surely. And not many people want to say amen after a statement like that, but it's true. Now, part of God's judgment is hardening a human heart. And mercifully, some do find faith in Christ, some even at the end of their life, like the thief on the cross. But unfortunately, many, many, many who reject Him throughout their life develop a blindness, a hardness of heart 
If you're going to be praying for a friend who doesn't know Jesus, you'd be praying for a soft heart for that individual, that their heart would soften towards the things of God because Scripture bears it out. You keep on rejecting God's truth, and He judges by hardening hearts against truth. That's why Paul wrote what he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at it. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That simply means if God's tugging on your heart right now in this moment, you better deal with it because the reality is if you keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off, you can get a callus over your heart. It becomes seared because not only do you not know what tomorrow brings, but you may be very much in danger of developing a hard heart. Friday morning, I drove over to Rochester, Michigan. I did a funeral for an individual, an 85-year-old who watches the service virtually, a saint of the Lord. But on my way there, five miles away from the funeral home, I came across an accident scene, a horrific accident scene where the driver of the car had gone right through the windshield. And there was a hole in the windshield where their body had flown through. And I pulled up on the scene at the same time that the ambulances and the fire trucks and the smoke is still coming out of the car. That individual did not leave their house at 7.30 in the morning saying, wow, today I get to die. They had no idea that they were going to be in a horrific car accident. And so Paul's pleading with people in 2 Corinthians saying, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Behold, now is the acceptable time because you could be very much in danger of developing a hard heart. Now, I could stop right there, but it would be incomplete. If you feel God calling you right now in this moment, tugging on your heart saying, yeah, I do need to get things right with God, do it right now in your seat and say, God, I've ignored you all my life, but I'm, I'm confessing Jesus right now as my Savior. Do that right now where you're sitting. You can do that in this moment, but it would be incomplete if I stopped right there Allow me to bring this full circle in just three minutes. There is no more quoted chapter of the Bible, no more quoted verse of the Bible than Psalms 110 in the New Testament. Jesus' go-to verse. When he defends who he is before the pharaohs and the scribes, or the, the Pharisees and the scribes, he goes to Psalm 110. So, Go with me to Psalm 110 and look with me at verse 1. The Lord, speaking of God the Father, says to my Lord, David is writing this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The most quoted verse of the most quoted chapter in the entire New Testament is a book about the final kingdom battle about the final victory. And God the Father says to God the Son, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. How do I understand that imagery? If your enemy is your footstool, then your enemy is under your foot. What did God promise in Genesis chapter three? Adam and Eve recently fallen, standing before God, and God says the seed of the woman, the one who is born through Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, will put his head under his foot, which is a match for Joshua chapter 11, which is a match for Psalm 110, which is a match for Revelation 119. And if you're new to church, you may have never seen Jesus this way, but I want you to see 
the Jesus you don't often read about because in the book of Revelation, John gets a glimpse, a prophetic glimpse of the final battle and the final victory. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and notice how he judges and makes war, church, in righteousness. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadem, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he does not take prisoners. There's no peace talks. There's no negotiations. Their end is the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. But for the one who has professed Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, if that's you this morning, your judgment Your judgment day, your judgment has already been rendered. God himself says, that one, because you have faith in my son, you're justified. I declare you righteous based on the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So every single person who has faith in Christ is declared righteous, and your name is this morning written in the Lamb's book of life. So that means you have nothing to fear on judgment day. Your punishment has already been taken by Jesus. That's why Paul can write what he does in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your neck is not under the heel of the King of Kings. Even though you may have had a hard heart at one time, through God's mercy and God's grace, you came to an understanding who, who ultimately this one is God the Son who will come with a final victory one day. Now, Joshua 11 is making it very, very clear. We're being reminded that God punishes all sin. He just punishes some faster than others. If you struggle with God over the things in Joshua chapter 11, you have to find yourself excessively more troubled by what happened at the cross because the only one who knew no sin whatsoever, that one became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How amazing. He willingly took sin upon himself. And there at the cross, God deals with sin in Jesus, and the Lord Jesus was crushed for our iniquity and utterly destroyed. And you find sin being dealt with in absolute finality. But praise God, he is greater than sin and death, and therefore you have the resurrection. But that's for another time. Let's pray. Father, I'm so drawn to the reality that none of us deserved what you offered. And our hearts could have been just as hard as Pharaoh and just as hard as Jabin, But in mercy and grace, you set us free because of what Jesus did. And so we can cry out with the writers of the song, my my chains are gone. 
thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. But at the same time, Father, I'm very mindful of individuals that we know that have no relationship with you. So God, I ask that you would make us bold and confident at the same time to speak of what we know to be true, that you set sinners free and we don't have to be an enemy of yours. Praise you for this truth. Send us out now with your blessing on us. God, we ask for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.